We're in Mark chapter 3, and we've been in the book of Mark since the first day of the church here, September 7th of this year. And just for the last couple months, we got sidetracked. You know, the Passion film came out, and we did some sermons concerning the Passion and who killed Jesus and why, and why did it have to be so bloody. And then we did some Easter stuff, what about the resurrection, so on and so forth. And then last week, we did a a message called Life After the Cross, and it talked about the position of the believer in Christ, the promises for the believer, and the power of the believer. If you weren't here last week, we want to give you that CD as a free gift today. It's a very important message that we gave last week concerning your life as a Christian. So if you weren't here last week and you're interested in that, today at the CD and tape table, we'll have some extra copies of that for you to get your hands on. If you're a new Christian and this whole Christianity thing is new to you, it's imperative that you get one of those CDs and listen to it. It'll be very helpful as you begin to discover the Lord and uh, what your new position in Him means. And so now we're back in the book of Mark, chapter 3, and we're going to pick it up in verse 20. And we're going to read to the end of the chapter. And it says this in Mark 3.20. And Jesus came home, that would be referring to Capernaum, And the multitude gathered again to such an extent that he couldn't even eat a meal. And when his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him. For they were saying, he has lost his senses. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebub, and he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. And Jesus called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables, saying, how can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, the house will not be able to stand. And so if Satan is risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he's finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sin shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Verse 31, And his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called to him. And a multitude was sitting around Jesus, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And answering them, he said, Who are my mothers and my brothers? And looking about on those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Let's pray. God, this morning as we come to your word, we've come with expectant hearts, just longing to hear from you. Desiring for you to do a work in us. Whatever you need to do, however you need to encourage us or admonish us this morning, Lord, we ask that you would do it through your word. And I realize that we've got a challenging text before us, and I realize before you, God, and before this congregation that I am unworthy to expound upon your word. I am unable in and of myself. And so, Lord, we as one body now would ask for your anointing upon me to communicate the truths of your word. Lord, we want to hear truth and not error. We want the word of God to be rightly divided now. We want to have a clear understanding of what you long to say to us. 
and how it's pertinent to our lives and the lives of those around us. And so God, now send your Holy Spirit to instruct us. Let every word that comes from this mouth be directly from your throne. And let every heart in this place be open to your truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In our text this morning, we see pictured here three types of people, or maybe better put, three attitudes that people can have as they encounter the person of Jesus Christ. The first person or attitude that we see displayed is that of the skeptic, described in verse 21 as his own people. His own people being a Greek phrase which is somewhat ambiguous, but uh, implies someone that's really close to Jesus. So either his immediate family or really close friends or, or just slightly removed relatives from Nazareth. But nonetheless, we're going to see and talk about in verse 21 that this group of people, his own people came to him and were skeptical about his identity and his message. The second type of person or reaction or attitude that we see in our text this morning is that of the critic. And that is pictured in verse 22 in the person of the scribes. The scribes were, of course, the religious leaders of the day. And they were the ones who were responsible for interpreting the word of God and explaining it to the people. And when people had questions concerning God's word, what it meant, and how it related to them, they would go to the scribes. And so the scribes had great authority and great input and great spiritual influence. But they came to Jesus as critics. And then the third group of people that we'll look at this morning are the believers. In the last verse, verse 35, they are mentioned as those who do the will of God. Jesus described them as being his family, his mothers and brothers and sisters, so to speak. Those who do the will of God expressly, that is, to repent of their sins and be born again. So we'll compare and contrast the skeptic, the critic, and the believer. As we do this moving through the text, there's going to be three points of interpretive importance that come up. The first one is this. In verse 27, what was Jesus referring to when he was speaking about binding the strong man? What does that mean and what is the application of that for us today? The second point of interpretive importance is uh, in verse 29. And we ask the question, what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit or the unpardonable sin? Everybody has heard of the unforgivable sin. Even non-Christians seem to have some passing, just somewhere they heard about it. What exactly is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the unforgivable sin? What do we need to know about it? And thirdly, how are we to understand Jesus' apparent rejection of his mothers and brothers as pictured in verses 31 through 35? So first, let's talk about the skeptic. Verse 21 again, it says, And when his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, He has lost his senses. These people, his own people, came as a skeptic. Here's what I mean. Allow me to define for you a skeptic. The term skeptic was originally used to designate members of various ancient Greek philosophical schools. And what these Greek philosophical schools held or forwarded or what their position was, was that they denied the possibility of having knowledge of any kind, any real knowledge. In other words, they said, well, you can't actually know anything for sure. And you can't actually know the truth. Sort of a a loose comparative for today would be relativism. You know what I mean? 
what is true for you isn't true for me, and what's true for me may not be true for you, but none of it is really true because it's all relative. It's kind of subjective truth and whatever you want it to be, but nobody can really know. <laughs> it's stupid. <laughs> but the term skeptic today has come to mean any person who habitually doubts questions, or suspends judgment upon matters generally accepted. We all know people like this. There's certain people where you could just hold up a handkerchief and say, hey man, here's a black handkerchief. And they'll go, "Mm, is it really black though? Because isn't black the absence of color? And if it's the absence of color, is it a color? And is there really any light anyway? And I'm not sure it's black. I mean, what if it's white? The skeptic. Silly. But his own people came to him as skeptics. His immediate family or somebody very close. And here's the reaction that they had to Jesus in his ministry. They said, he has gone berserk. Literally in the Greek, that phrase where they believe that he had lost his senses is very strong. It's not just like, wow, he's got a few loose marbles. It's like, wow, this guy is fully nutso. And when it says they came to take custody of him, it's the word for to arrest. So his family came to Capernaum where Jesus had set up his headquarters and made his home really from Nazareth. They came to seize him by force saying, man, what's going on with Jesus? I mean, we grew up with this guy and everything seemed cool and he's just there working as a carpenter and everything is chill and all of a sudden the guy gets to be 30 years old and he just goes nutso. He's out saying he's the Messiah and he's healing people and casting out demons and he's walking on water and turning water to wine and the whole nine yards. He's loony. It must be that he's loony. Let's go get him. And so not knowing how to respond to the reality of the person of Jesus, there comes in this idea that he must be a lunatic. A lunatic is often what people assume Jesus to be today. Hearing the claims of Jesus, claiming to be the Son of God, God manifest in the flesh, claiming to be the only way to salvation, People think, well, that could that really be true? I mean, I'm skeptical of that. I don't understand. I'm going to suspend judgment on that. To be a skeptic is to suspend judgment. And so they say, I'm, I'm just going to wait. I'm not exactly sure who this guy is. And that was the situation with his family. One of his brothers, born to Mary, his name was James. And James was continually thinking, man, this guy's nuts and wanted nothing to do with Jesus except for to seize him until he saw the risen Lord. And then James was converted, and James became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. His judgment no longer being suspended, and yet we see people today who have suspended judgment. And as long as a person does so, he really forces the issue to come down to these three options. As long as he says, I'm not sure about the person of Jesus, and I'm not sure about his claims, he forces it to be one of these. Either Jesus was indeed a lunatic. He really believed what he was saying, but he was nutso. It wasn't really true. Or he was a liar. That is, he knew the things that he was saying was false. He wasn't really the Son of God. He wasn't God in the flesh. He wasn't really the way, the truth, and the life. He just made it all up and he was lying about it and he would die for it. Or the third option is that he really was the Lord. You see, when you suspend judgment, if you have any knowledge at all, if you actually look at the Bible, if you try to know and to discern, if you try to look at the evidence, if you try to look at the facts, you've got to come to one of these three conclusions. Everybody must do something with the person of Jesus. 
Because he rose from the dead 2,000 years ago, man. You got to do something with the person of Jesus because he claims absolute exclusivity. Claims to be the only way. You've got to deal with that, people. And so they either say, well, he's nuts, or he was a liar, or he was actually God. Some people call it the great trilemma. You think a dilemma is bad, try a trilemma. Regarding his being a liar, Philip Schaeff, the eminent historian, writes this. The hypothesis of imposture is so revolting to moral as well as common sense that its mere statement is its condemnation. How in the name of logic, common sense, and experience could an imposter, that is a deceitful, selfish, depraved man, have invented and consistently maintained from the beginning to the end the purest and noblest character known in the history with the most perfect air of truth and reality? How could he have conceived and successfully carried out a plan of unparalleled beneficence, moral magnitude, and sublimity and sacrifice his own life for it? In other words, what this historian says is it's ridiculous to say that he was a liar. How could he maintain a lie and yet have exhibited such kindness? Such truth, such reality in his teaching, such profundity in his teaching, such perfect moral character, and yet we're to believe that he was so conniving, so deceitful, so wicked that he would even go to death for that lie. It just doesn't make sense. It's just logically and morally silly. And others would say, well, he was a lunatic. And yet that presents a problem because if we look at the historical person of Jesus, there was a great sanity in his moral teachings. His moral teachings were sharp and they were clear and they were profound and they confounded the wisdom of the day. Even when he was 12 years old, we see him there in the temple speaking with the religious leaders and they were amazed at his wisdom and the things he had to say. And every time that he was confronted The words that he had to say silenced the opposition. Such sane, clear, moral teaching. And yet, if we believe that he was a lunatic, how do we reconcile that with the fact that he must have been an absolute freaky megalomaniac to believe that he was God? And on the one hand, he was teaching this humility And the first shall be last, and the greatest shall be the servant of all. And the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So he humbled himself to an incredibly low place, washing the feet of the disciples, and yet at the same time claiming to be God in the flesh and the Son of God. You can't reconcile those two. You can't reconcile those two. The only plausible or plausible opinion is given by C.S. Lewis in his famous book, And it reads like this. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really silly thing that people often say about Jesus. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we mustn't say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said wouldn't be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But don't let us come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He hasn't left that open to us. He didn't intend to. 
So when we look at the teachings of Jesus and the claims of Jesus, it's silly to say that he was a liar. Or it's silly to say that he was a great moralist. How could he be a great moralist if he was a liar and a deceiver? And it doesn't make sense that he was a lunatic because he actually, literally rose from the dead. Now that shuts every mouth, doesn't it? I mean, you can say what you want about the dude. But when Easter came along and the women folk went to the tomb and the stone was gone and the angel was in there and said, why are you looking for the dead among the living? Or why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. At that point, every mouth was shut. Because Jesus is the only one in history to predict and pull off his own death and resurrection, thereby giving his words profound validity. Amen? So those who suspend judgment, the skeptic who comes and says, I'm not exactly sure what to do with the person of Jesus. I've read some things. I've heard some things. Listen to me, man. You better really begin to investigate. You better really begin to look. Because as long as you hold that position, your position is not plausible. You can't be a liar. You can't be a lunatic. He must be Lord. And so if you're a skeptic this morning, unsure, it's time to get sure. And that's why you can come here. Because we teach the Word of God. We let you know what the Bible says. The Bible is the Word of God. It is absolute truth. It has proven itself to be valid in its historical content, in its prophetic content, in its moral content. It has proven itself to be valid and true above and beyond any other religious book in history. This summer we'll be teaching a series on Bible prophecy. And the predictions in the Bible that have come true 100% and those which are yet to come. And so if you're still skeptic at that time, come and see the truth of the Word of God. But don't hold your position of ambiguity too long, my friend. Because the Bible says that this life is but a vapor. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. And we're not promised tomorrow. That's why the Bible declares today is the acceptable day of salvation. Today is a day to make up your mind. And if you're going to reject Jesus, if you're going to relegate him to the place of liar or lunatic, you had better have a good reason. And it had better be better than the Bible, which is the best-selling, most printed book in all the history of the world. You've got to have a good reason. You've got to have a good reason. Because there's plenty of good reason to believe in Jesus as a Savior. So the skeptics who relegated him to the place of lunatic. Now we look at the critic. To define critic, it's a person who forms and expresses judgments of people or things according to certain standards or values. It also can define a person who indulges in fault-finding and censure. We all know critics, right? (laughs) We all are critics at certain times. We've all got preconceived notions and our own sets of standards and values and ideas that cause us to pass judgment. We can all be overly critical at times. But the scribes now are a picture of the critical spirit. It says in verse 22, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. Now why are they saying this? The parallel account of this in Matthew chapter 12 tells us that right before the, fair, or the scribe said this, Jesus had encountered a, ma- a man who was blind and dumb. He couldn't speak and he couldn't see and he was possessed by a demon. And in their presence and in an instant, Jesus healed the man. The scribes who were no doubt sent from uh, Jerusalem as a delegation saw Jesus heal the man and now they had to figure out what they were going to do with this miraculous power. <laughs> 
And so they pass judgment according to certain standards or values that they had. They couldn't deny the act of Jesus. It was right there for all of Israel to see. It was right there for everyone to see that he had healed the man, that he had set him free. They couldn't deny that. All they could do is criticize and interpret it. And so instead of saying, well, he must be from God. I mean, look what he's doing. They said, well, he must be from Satan. And so the accusation that they put forward is, yeah, he is casting out demons, but he's casting out demons by the power of Satan. Now, it doesn't take a Jesus to figure out that that was a dumb criticism. Jesus went on to say, first it says in verse 23, and he called them to himself and began speaking to them, saying, how can Satan cast out Satan, you guys? Think about what you're saying, scribes. Verse 24, if a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom can't stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan is risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. It's so silly that they would say Jesus was casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub, who is the king of demons, or Satan as Jesus defines him. That would mean he was against himself. That would be foolish, Jesus says. And yet, you see, that's what criticism causes us to do. Criticism causes us to ignore or shun the truth and cling to what is comfortable. Cling to what we already know. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? That's why it's so easy to come to church and criticize. Because sometimes church is different from the church you came from or it's a little bit uncomfortable and this guy up here who's really tall is always talking and he's going to say some dumb things every now and again. And we get outside our comfort zone. And that's why it's so easy to fall back on what we really feel is right and we really feel is true and begin to criticize. I don't like this and I don't like that and I don't believe this. And when you do that, you put yourself in the place of the scribes whom we'll see in a minute Jesus had some strong words for. And so having a critical spirit, they accused him of not having the power of God, but the power of Satan. And now Jesus says something very profound in verse 27. He says, But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Here's a question of interpretation that must be addressed at this point. What was Jesus teaching, or rather, what was he expressing when he spoke about going into the house of the strong man and binding him that you might plunder his goods? Very simply, Jesus was saying, I did not cast out demons by the power of Satan, Satan being the strong man, but I, one who is much stronger, have come and subdued him have caused him to be in subjection to me, that my will would be done and not his will be done. Very simply, Jesus was saying, Satan may be a strong man, but I'm the stronger man. He may have some sway and some influence in this world. He may be called the God of this world, lowercase g, but I'm the God of the universe, uppercase g. And so throughout the New Testament, throughout the Gospels, Jesus teaches that he had absolute authority over demons. It is one of the biggest lessons that we've seen thus far in the book of Mark, that he had total authority over demonic powers. And so he says here, I am not partnering with the strong man. I am overpowering the strong man. 
And he says it by way of illustration. And here's where this becomes something that we should address, though not of extreme importance. Many people have taken this verse to mean that we ought to pray in this way. That when we're praying, we ought to say something along the lines of, Satan, I bind you. Or, we bound you. And the text for that would come just from this. That you cannot plunder the goods of the strong man, the strong man being Satan, unless he is first bound. And so they believe, well, Jesus said here that we ought to pray and say, I'm praying to bind Satan. A lot of people pray that way. It's no big deal. But I don't believe that's what Jesus was teaching here expressly. I believe that he was making his point and he was illustrating the fact that he is profoundly more powerful than Satan and that he wasn't partnering with Satan. He was subduing him and overpowering him. Nowhere else in the whole of Scripture is the believer instructed to bind Satan. When Jesus sent out the 70 on their little mission trip two by two, He said, go out and preach the good news of the kingdom, heal the sick, and cast out demons. He didn't give them instruction saying, and when you go into a region, bind the satanic powers there. He didn't give them that specific instruction. Rather, the New Testament tells us, for example, in 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9, where it says, Be sober, be alert, because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. It says, Stand firm, therefore, in your faith. Stand firm in your faith. So when we encounter the enemy, the Bible tells us to stand firm. James chapter 4, verse 7 backs us up where it says, Submit yourselves therefore to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. Again, in Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul is talking about the spiritual armor, it says there that we have a shield of faith. And with the shield of faith, we are able to extinguish the fiery darts of the evil one. The fiery darts mean the accusations and lies of Satan. The shield of faith is based on our position in Christ as his children, as his possession, and our privileges in Christ. And so we hold up that shield of faith, which is the promises, the privileges, and the position. And when Satan comes along and says, you're not forgiven, the shield of faith says, oh no, but I've been born again. And when Satan comes along and says, you've got no hope in God, that shield of faith comes up and says, oh, but I have a sure hope and a sure foundation in Christ. And when Satan comes along and says, you're not a child of God, you hold up that shield of faith and says, no, I've received Christ, and to as many have received them, to them has been given the right to be called the children of God. To as many as received him, excuse me. So we're told to have the shield of faith which extinguishes the schemes of the enemy, We're told to stand firm, which is to stand firm in our position in Christ and our standing in grace. And we're told to resist the enemy with that shield of faith. And we are told in Ephesians chapter 6 that we have the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. How do we combat the lies of the enemy? With the truth of God. That's why it's so important, Christians, that you read your Bible every day. Because the enemy will lie to you every day. And you make yourself subject to the lies of the enemy if you don't know the truth of God. And we have the helmet of salvation, the Bible says. The belt of truth. The breastplate of righteousness. So on and so forth. And we are told in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 that our weapons are not carnal, 
They're not a flesh and blood, but our weapons against the enemy are divinely powerful for tearing down every lofty thing that would exalt itself against the knowledge of God. How does Satan seek to exalt false philosophies and ideologies? Through lying. How do we tear him down? Through the truth and through praying the truth and standing in the truth. You see, we're given the rock to stand on, the shield to hold, and the sword to wield, and the prayer with which to battle, but we're not told that we have a noose. We're not told that we have a lasso. I don't see that we're told to bind Satan in that way through prayer. If that worked, and Christians are continually doing it all the time, saying, Satan, I bind you, why is he continually on the loose? I mean, I I hear it prayed all the time, Satan, we bind you. When did he get unbound? Who unbound him? For how long is he bound? Listen, the Bible declares emphatically that he will be bound, but it's in the millennial kingdom. It's spoken of in Revelation chapter 20. It says there that Jesus Christ himself will put him in prison, in bondage, will bind him up for a thousand years. But right now, he's not bound. He's limited by the authority of God and the sovereignty of God. Remember when Satan wanted to mess with Job, he had to ask God's permission. Remember when Satan wanted to mess with Peter, he had to ask Jesus' permission. And Jesus said, Peter, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. And God affords Satan in this dispensation, in this time, a certain amount of influence in the world. Because men have rejected the light and they love the darkness. But he is not yet bound. And so how ought we to pray? With faith. With the truth that is a sword. Standing firm in it. Resisting the enemy. Knowing that our prayers is a weapon that are divinely powerful to tear down the schemes of the enemy. Now what happens if we encounter Christians or we are a Christian that prays, Satan, we bind you? Well, no big deal. Here's why. God looks upon the heart. God knows what you mean. God knows what we have need of before we ask him, the Bible says. And so if you need God to intervene on your behalf with regards to Satan, God knows that. God knows how to answer that prayer before it falls from your little lips. And so what's important in prayer is not always so much the word, but the heart. Because we're people, we can mess the words up. We don't have perfect theology all the time perfect doctrine, perfect Bible interpretation. Our words, uh, we can mess it all up, but God looks upon the heart, amen? And beyond that, Jesus made it very clear in the New Testament that he has given the Christian authority, authority to cast out demons. Now that's better than binding. That's better than binding. Satan, I bind you. Okay, so, and then he gets loose. But if someone's got a demon in him, Satan, you are cast out in the name of Jesus. That's better than binding, man. You don't just bind a strong man, you kick him out. Amen? So that's an interpretive issue that I wanted to bring up for a moment. Don't get sidetracked with it. Back to the critic. The critic judge according to certain standards or values and they missed the person of Jesus Christ because they were refusing to believe the truth about him though it was before their eyes. And now our last person that we look at in our text, the believer. In defining the believer, he is one who has trust or confidence in a statement or promise. The believer is the one who has trust or confidence in a statement or promise, namely in our context here, the statements and promises of Jesus Christ. 
And they are pictured perfectly in verse 35. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. What was Jesus saying? When his mother and his brothers came all the way from Nazareth and there they were outside the room where Jesus was with his followers there and they wanted to get in and some said, hey Jesus, your mama's outside, man. Your bros are here. And Jesus said, who are my mothers and brothers? He made a radical statement. My family are the ones that do the will of God. The will of God expressly being that you are born again. My family is those who come to me as the Son of God, repent of their sins, are forgiven and made brand new, and they are now adopted into my family, into the royal family, made king's kids, so to speak. And that is the family that Jesus gives priority to. Now, these are strong words. It wasn't that he was rejecting Mary and James and the others. It was more that he wanted to highlight the importance of the spiritual connection through forgiveness that we can have with God. That the spiritual connection is stronger than the blood connection. Indeed, it's a brand new blood connection. We're saved by the blood of the lamb. And it's better than the blood of the mama or the papa. It's the blood of the lamb. And so he said, my family are the ones who do the will of God, the spiritual family. The believers and the critics, they saw the same thing. They had all seen what Jesus had done, that he had cast out demons, that he had healed the blind, that he had caused the mute to speak, so on and so forth. They had all seen the same thing. Some criticized, some believed, some were the skeptics, they withheld judgment. But they had all seen the same thing. I want you to think this morning where you are with the Lord. Are you a skeptic withholding judgment? Man, you don't know how long you have. You better investigate. You better start to seriously look at the claims of Jesus. Are you a critic this morning? There are those in your midst here who have been born again, made brand new creations, had all their sins washed away, and they ain't seen nothing more than you. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit was sent into the world to convict the world of sin and he works on all of us. They've had the same amount of revelation and yet they have simply chosen to put their faith and trust in him as a savior. How many here have done that? Raise your hand. Born again. See? That's a whole lot of people. Those of you that didn't raise your hand, they haven't seen something you haven't seen. They heard this at one time. Jesus is the only unique son of God God draping himself in humanity who came to pay the price for the sins of the world that you might be forgiven and have eternal life in heaven with him. All you need to do is repent and receive. That's all they knew. Anybody know anymore when you got saved? Ain't nobody know nothing. You just knew you were a sinner that needed to be saved. But now I want you to see as we end the danger of the critic. Verse 28, Jesus, still speaking to the scribe, says in verse 28, Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And it says that Jesus said this in verse 30 because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. 
Or he said to this because they were saying he's possessed himself. Now what is the unforgivable sin? What is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Almost everybody has heard of it. I'm sure that there are some people in this room that fear that they're guilty of it. What does it mean to commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? And why is it different against merely blaspheming Jesus Christ? Because he said in verse 28, Truly I tell you, all sins shall be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter, except for this one. What does it mean? Here's a very simple definition up on the board. Very simply, it is the ongoing, continual rejection of the witness of the Holy Spirit to the divinity and saviorhood of Christ. It is the perversion in the heart which chooses to call light darkness and darkness light. It's a continuing rejection of the witness of the Holy Spirit, whether that witness be a quiet witness in the conscience, the rational witness of the word, or even miracles and wonders. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is when we reject the efforts of the Holy Spirit to draw us unto salvation. We've got to keep some context in mind. We're going to come right back here, but move over to John chapter 16 very quickly. John 16. As we see the job description of the Holy Spirit in the world. John chapter 16, starting in verse 7, Jesus speaking. He says, but I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Listen to what he said. He's speaking to the disciples and he's, you know, soon going to be crucified and then he's going to ascend into heaven after the resurrection. And he says to the disciples and to the world, it's better for me to go to heaven. It's better for me to be seated at the right hand of the Father than to maintain my presence here on earth in this physical body. That's pretty profound. That's a big deal for Jesus to say, the right thing for me to do is split. Because we'd often think, whoa, why aren't you here? Here's what he says. For if I do not go away, the helper shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The helper is the Holy Spirit. When Jesus ascended unto heaven, the Holy Spirit was given not only to the church, but to the world. And the Holy Spirit has a job description in this world, something that he is continually doing, and it's shown to us in verse 8. Jesus says, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The Holy Spirit's job is to convict the world concerning those three things. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. What does the word convict mean? It means to convince of the truth thereof. So the Holy Spirit's job is to convince people of the truth of the person of Jesus Christ. That's the job. That's why it was good for Jesus to go and the Holy Spirit to come. Because men and women need to be convinced concerning who he was. And that's the job of the Holy Spirit. So to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to deny the work of the Holy Spirit. Even though we have ample evidence ample opportunity, ample revelation to believe who Jesus is and yet to reject that work of the Holy Spirit wooing us unto God, convicting us concerning the fact that we're sinners and that there's a righteous standard and that there's a judgment coming. And so when someone continually does that, that is the unforgivable sin. Why is it unforgivable? 
Because there's no repentance. It is not as though it's something that was outside the covering of the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ is sufficient for all things. There is no sin that that blood cannot atone for. So it's not as though it is outside the covering of the blood of Christ, but it is outside of man's repentance. It is man saying, okay, I see the claims of Jesus. I hear the word of God. I see the transformed life. I see the miraculous. And yet I don't want to believe it. I refuse to receive it. An example of that is the scribes. They saw exactly what took place in that healing and the setting free of the man, but they said, no, we'd rather attribute it to Satan than attribute it to God. A guy named C.E.B. Cranfield, who's a great theologian of this last century, writes this, speaking on the context of the scribes, the scribal context. He says, if we have been following the right clue, then it means that those who are particularly or those who particularly should heed the warning of this verse today are the theological teachers and the official leaders of the churches. Whoa, wait a minute. This is maybe a new thought for some of you. Who is in danger of committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Those who have the most revelation and yet refuse to believe. The scribes were to be the teachers of Israel. They were entrusted with the interpretation of the law. They should have known. They could have looked at the Old Testament and seen the prophecies of the coming of the Messiah. His character and his mission and all the things that that he would fulfill, they should have known. They, of all people, had ample opportunity. And so today, there's a lot of people who maybe have had a religious education. Or maybe they grew up in church. And yet seeing the light, they cling to the darkness. That's what the Bible says happened there in John chapter 1. That the men saw the light. The light is Christ and the light came into the world and yet they loved the darkness. Even knowing that it was the light. It's not the ignorant blasphemer on the street who is in danger of committing the unforgivable sin, but the person in the church who knows the scriptures has heard the word held forth with accuracy, has seen something of the miraculous power of God and changed lives, and yet rejects it all, even identifying what he has seen with the power of Satan. He chooses to call light darkness. So who is this warning most directed toward from Jesus? I think the person who grew up in the church who thinks that because they've gone to church their whole life and they've got some blood ties, some family ties, that they're all right. Hey man, you ain't all right unless you repented. You ain't all right unless you've been born again. How do you know if you're born again? Because you know. Because you repent, you confess that you're a sinner. God, save me, I'm wrong and you're right. Save me. At that moment, you're born again. But if you come and you hear week after week and you have knowledge and you never repent, then you are guilty of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and there is no forgiveness for that rejection. And the only alternative for that person is hell. That's not good. It doesn't say, it doesn't say that that person has no chance to repent. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you've heard a lot of things about Jesus and you've never repented. You repent today and he will forgive you. There is zero examples in the Bible of someone repenting to God and God saying, sorry. There's no examples of that. Everyone that repents is saved. You can repent, but if you continue on, you're guilty of that blasphemy. There's no forgiveness for you. 
If you're here this morning and you're concerned that maybe you're guilty of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, then repent. If it's a burden, you're continually walking around thinking, man, the unforgivable sin, I wonder if I've committed the unforgivable sin, I hope I haven't. If you're that concerned about it, then you haven't. Because your heart is for the Lord and to please the Lord and to be repentant before the Lord, so you're not guilty of that. But this morning, according to our text, you've got to identify yourself with somebody. Are you the skeptic, the critic, or the believer? The skeptic doesn't know how much time he has. The critic is in danger of being guilty of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But the believer has unending grace and forgiveness and the promise of eternal life. And it's just that simple. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word this morning and the clarity thereof and just the instruction of your Holy Spirit through your Holy Word. We pray that these things that we've learned this morning, you would cause them to dwell richly in us. And I ask if there's anyone here who doesn't know your forgiveness, that has been rejecting of you, holding on to undue skepticism or criticism, that even in this moment they would repent. They'd say, okay, God, I've been wrong. I'm making up my mind. You're right. Jesus, you are the only Savior. I repent. Save me. Forgive me. And now they'd be part of those people in verse 35. The family of God. The beloved of Christ. Forgiven, made brand new, promised heaven, saved from hell. Thank you for so great a salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.